Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Quadcast podcast. I so appreciate your stopping by. This podcast is mainly for and about folks like me, John McAlevey, who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of this show as your 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. I so hope you had the opportunity to get to know Jenny Smith, my guest on last week's show. Following her injury and a gymnastics mishap, she has achieved so much, and her JennySmithRollsOn.com website is a must for the spinal cord injured community. Thank you again, Jenny, for joining me, and more importantly, for all you continue to do on our behalf. Today's guest, Charles Fleischer, is someone I have not had the opportunity to meet in person yet, and I actually found out about him when I was making my rounds for the peer mentor counseling job I have at Kessler. Charles has been a participant over the years, and when I reached out to see if he was interested in continuing, we struck up a conversation. By the end of it, I was not only thankful that he's still on board, but I was so intrigued by his story that I booked him for the podcast. Now, when preparing my introduction for him, I was struck by any number of cliches, such as when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, there is more than one way to skin a cat, and life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of how you react to it. Charles is a spinal cord injury survivor, highly experienced speaker and entrepreneur who has spoken to over 50,000 people during his career. He is also an author, and his book, The Secret of Difficulties, Four Steps to Turn Tragedy into Opportunity, chronicles people from different walks of life who have found opportunities in their life that they would not have had if they had not decided to overcome their challenges. Basically, the individuals, including actor Michael J. Fox and former heavyweight boxing champion of the world George Foreman, are living, breathing examples of the cliches referenced above. The awareness Charles has received from living with paralysis has led him to believe that anyone can potentially use difficulties to better themselves, and his book provides an outline for anyone to get started. Wow, are you as excited as I am to hear not only Charles' personal story, but just what those four steps he has developed are? Yeah, I am too. And in the business, my friends, this is what is referred to as a tease. So following this brief commercial timeout, we will hear directly from Charles Fleischer, the Opportunities Guy. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan. And each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. Welcome back to the show. Remember, you can find the Quadcast podcast on the following podcast hosts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And without further ado, hello, Charles Fleischer, and welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you, John. Good to be on. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. And why don't we start right at the beginning, as I usually do with all of my guests. Tell us about where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood. Sure. I am solidly central New Jersey. I grew up in a subsection of Middletown called Belford. It is about, believe it or not, 12 minutes directly south of Manhattan, but it's got the the Hudson Bay in between. So it takes you about an hour by car or train to get around the Hudson, unless you could fly, so you could get right across. So I grew up in a little town called Belford. It's right on the shore. There's a, a Navy base right in the neighborhood really close to Sandy Hook. And uh, Red Bank is a big, kind of a big town in the neighborhood. Absolutely. Were you a beach guy growing up? Fairly, fairly. It was close enough to hitchhike. So, or take the, the, the city bus, take about 20 minutes to jump on the city bus. Hitchhike. Um, Boy, we're going back in, in time here, huh? We're going back to the 70s and 80s with the hitchhiking stuff. It was, yes. I grew up in the, uh, the early 80s. I was... 
prime hitchhiking time, like 15, 16 years old in yeah. 1985, 1986. Yeah, different world, right? I, I'm right in your, your sweet spot as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I was born in, in uh, 1968, so I'm right there with you in that uh, the, the 80s were where it's at, right? It was a good time. It was a good time. It was safe, but you had a little bit more freedom growing up. Than yes, you, no you. doubt. So aside from hitchhiking and hanging out at the beach, what were some other your hobbies growing up? Did you play sports? And what were some other things you were interested in as a young man? I reluctantly played soccer, was not an athlete, couldn't get my head. My head was always in the clouds back in those days, not on the soccer field. So that didn't, that didn't work out too well. I joined the Civil Air Patrol and did that for a couple of years. I was very interested and flying and learning to fly. And it was kind of a, like almost kind of a paramilitary kind of thing. It was very close to, uh, closely aligned with the Air Force. We were actual Air Force, uh, youth Air Force uniforms. They taught us about aviation and clouds. And uh, this is kind of like um, Boy Scouts on steroids. (laughs) Actually actually took us flying and they taught us to fly from the time we were teenagers, did some of that. That's very cool. I never knew anything like that existed. Yeah, I don't know if they're still around. It was, that was, they actually had space at Fort Monmouth in, uh, in Eatontown, New Jersey. And okay. we took trips to air shows and to, to museums in D.C. We did some camping. Uh, we had a monthly, the highlight was the monthly trip to the airport where they had a few volunteers who owned their own planes and a couple of guys who were on kind of timeshares for planes where you get a certain amount of hours and they would take us flying and teach us how to fly. That's wild. Yeah, usually, so, the, usually the people that I have on here were uh, were athletes growing up playing a hundred different sports. But this is something new and different, and uh, and very cool. It's uh, I'm glad that you were able to to bring that to uh, our attention. Now, how about let's move on towards high school, and you know, you're thinking about college. What were you starting to think was going to be maybe the career path for you, Charles? Well, I was not a stellar student, to be perfectly honest with you, John. I kind of just got by at some point I went to my, my guidance counselor and he told me, uh, I asked him, I said, I'd like to take college courses because I had discussions with family members and working as a dishwasher and doing construction. I was starting to think about college and my guidance counselor said that it wasn't a good idea that I didn't test well. Uh, my uh, my IO test, I guess they were called back then. Yeah, sure. And he, and he discouraged me and talked me out of going into college classes. So I worked, uh, work starting probably 13 years old, back when it was 3.35 minimum wage. Yeah. And spent some time with my friends, uh, goofed off a lot, did a lot of shop classes. And... High school kind of didn't get very far accomplishment-wise in high school. So Yeah, I was told uh, that I didn't apply myself as well. Um, I was luckily able to go on to college. But yeah, my guidance counselors, they weren't too uh, doing backflips at my transcripts either. Yes, yes. Well, luckily for me, high school education was not, uh, well, when they told me not to go to take college classes i kind of did everything i could to avoid going to school (laughs) that was your license yeah it was your get out of jail free card right well you don't you don't think i'm gonna get anything out of this one should i yeah uh but as you know as soon as i worked outside doing construction and uh Mm -hmm. working in restaurants i knew i didn't want to do that either so i i Registered for community college as soon as I graduated. All right, cool. Now let's fast forward. Take us to uh, October 10, 1988, the day that changed your life. Tell us the story and the circumstances of how and exactly what happened to you. So I was, it was directly after graduation. It was a high school graduation. It was the October following high school graduation. I was 
registered full-time with a local community college. I had found a little bit of a niche of something that I was interested in. I enjoy history, so I, so I was thinking about maybe becoming law enforcement or teaching. I was like, well, I like history, and I could probably make a career out of this, so I'm going to take college classes. And the night of my accident, uh, picture... Picture the walls of the the gym in high school or in the library of college where it says, don't drink and drive. And you see somebody with a drink in their hand and a car next with ambulances and police. Yeah. I am the kid on the poster. Wow. I, I am the poster boy for everything you could do wrong on Saturday night to, uh, to get yourself from them. A pretty shitty situation. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. That's all right. It's happened. It's real life. So, so tell us what led up to it. Where were you? Who were you with? Um, What was the deal? Tell us. So it was October tenth. It was a a nice, comfortable fall night. I actually went into work. I was supposed to work. I was supposed to cover somebody. I was a bus boy at the time. And the guy asked two people to cover. So I kind of bullied my way out of out of work. I told the guy who was there, uh, or, or came in, I said, okay, well, I'm leaving. You stay. Yeah. So I should have been working, actually, to tell you the truth. So yeah. that was my own fault for, uh, for getting out of work that night. Do you have a decision you'd like to change, right, Charles? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's one of those things, you know? Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, I don't know if I'd want to change it because who knows where what I would have become. True, I'm true. Where I am at this point, yep. you know, I had to do it for thirty years. Yeah. So go on. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. No, that's fine. So I got together with three of my buddies and we started to have a few drinks. Actually, my mother was working. We were in the living room of my mother's house. So we're eighteen years old. Uh, there was one guy younger and two guys the same age as me and one guy older. So it was actually one the same age, one younger and one older. So four of us. And I had a brilliant idea. This was me again. I suggested that we go visit a friend down in college. He just started going to college down in Stockton. A few months later, I stepped into what was actually at the time my dream car. It was a 300ZX Turbo. Those were sweet. I remember them back in the day. They are still hot. They are still a pretty hot car. Yeah. I did, I did not know the guy who was driving, who was uh, a good friend's cousin, but I wanted to drive with with a cool car. Yeah. And uh, about 45 minutes later, we're rocking and down the highway. We were going speeds up and above. 140 miles an hour at times. Oh, my God. I didn't realize cars could actually go that fast. Really? What were you on the parkway? Yeah, we were on the parkway, and he had it up to 140. Oh, my God. And it was definitely the, the feeling you get when you're on a roller coaster. They get thrown back in the seat. Were you in the back seat or in the passenger seat? It was actually a two-seater. You had to go to two different cars. Oh, okay. So it was just you two. It was just me and the guy I didn't know. Oh, good grief. I was in the passenger seat. And as we pulled into a toll that uh, used to be a toll right before Seaside Heights at exit 82, a cop pulled up behind us, and the driver decided it wasn't uh, in his best interest to stick around. So he took off. He took off like a bat out of hell. Oh. Dusted the cop. uh, Dusted the cop. And I think the cop might have let off, actually. So he, as soon as the cop was out of sight, he exited the turnpike out of the parkway, going 70-plus miles an hour. Car hit a curb, rolled over. Uh, well, I said it, it hit a curb, rolled into the grass, hit a small tree, rolled over. And because the poster boy for everything you could do wrong on a Saturday night wasn't wearing his seatbelt, I got ejected out through the T-tops, thrown over 100 feet, slammed my head flat into a curb. Oh, God. And uh, broke my neck 
at C5-6, which, uh, which left me paralyzed in the upper chest down, limited use of my arms. I have use of my biceps, but no triceps. I cannot use my fingers at all. They don't open and close. I have wrist extensors, but not flexors. Wow. And, and Charles, what happened to the driver? Was he, was he injured? Was he killed? Is he okay? Uh, no. Uh, well, I can't answer that with a no. He, he wasn't killed. He was minor injuries. He had a broken leg. Uh, I believe he was able to get out of the car. Oh, God. Oh. Um, was he wearing a seatbelt? I do not know. It's an odd kind of a thing because yeah. I never saw him. I never spoke to him. Like yeah. I said, he was not he was not a close friend of mine. His attorneys advised him never to talk to me, so I never talked to him again. That's unbelievable. You had no correspondence with him ever again. Nope. Oh my God. He didn't even come by and see you in the hospital or anything. That's bizarro world. Oh man, imagine that. The the lawyers get involved and, and he can't even own up to the mistake that he made. Oh gosh. Yeah. So well, and 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 hearing about his life after, I don't think he had a I don't know what he ever happened to him, but he did not have a uh, uh a happy story either. I believe he had troubles with drugs and alcohol. Oh wow. So he, yeah. he may have just been so freaked out by all of this that it may have completely affected him mentally. You never know. It might, it might have been uh, and an odd, uh, synchronistic kind of weird. Yeah, karma is a you-know-what, right? Well, listen, in a bizarre land story about 10 years ago, my sister went to junior high school with this guy, uh, older sister. Right. They were having... A conversation at a reunion, a junior high school reunion, and my sister's talking to the sister of of the the older sister of the guy who's driving the car. Oh. And the girl starts to tell my sister, I don't know her name, about how their family struggled ever since her uh, her brother was in a car accident and caused. Someone she didn't even know my name. She caused Ugh. someone to have a spinal cord injury and broke his neck. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, yeah. Well, here's the kicker. Yeah, he's telling this to my sister. She didn't even know my sister was related to the guy. Ugh. She didn't know it was me, and that I was her sister. Her That's brother. unbelievable. That's just life, man. Things coming together like that. Worlds intersecting years and years apart, right, Charles? That's not so. Yeah, they might have been affected more than me, actually. Yeah, it sounds like it really affected the family. So, what is you know going through your mind right now? Where were you taken, and uh, what did the doctors tell you initially? Uh, well, they have this wonderful thing called shock. So I don't remember <laughs> anything that kind of happened after going into the turn. But I was told I was a conscious that the ambulance came, they, uh, they knew right away I was paralyzed. They got my ID off and I had my wallet on me. It was a hospital very close, uh, uh, like, like literally two and a half minutes away, but it's a local hospital. So they knew well enough not to take me and keep me. Right. So they, so I was conscious, took the helicopter, excuse me, the helicopter me to a, hospital in Philadelphia, which was a regional trauma center, which at the time was the closest one. So, Yep. Unbelievable. Uh, how about after that, Charles? Family and friends, how important were they to your recovery? Uh, huge, huge, essential. Uh, my room, luckily, uh, even though it was pretty far, it was an hour and a half for everybody to get down to Philadelphia, the traffic, you know, even more sometimes was with me constantly in the hospital, my um, my friends and my family, uh, the people that was actually, the other two guys that was with that night were with me all the time. Other close friends that I had were with me all the time. My mother was an, is a nurse, but at the time, she took a leave of absence and she stayed with me Monday through Friday. And then my family and friends would spend 
the weekends with me. Isn't it amazing how, how your, you know, your buddies and your family, you need them at that time. I can't imagine folks nowadays, you know, with this whole COVID thing where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm up and around Kessler every now and then. And I know that since the lockdown, they were not allowed to have any visitors at all. I can't imagine laying in the bed by myself, having just endured a spinal cord injury and, and have no one to, you know, no shoulder to cry on, if you will. It's, it's unbelievable how they're doing it. No, it's, it's, it's probably one of the biggest tragedies that's outside of people who died. You know, people have had to go through times like that without the support system that really kind of can be the make or break kind of thing. Without a doubt. So, so now that you have all that support, where do you do your therapy? Where do they, uh, where do they send you for PT and OT? And then uh, after that, um, what were you thinking? Like now, what? What am I going to do with my life now? So very, some very important stuff happened. I was kind of a gypsy when it came to therapy. Uh, I was in the, the, the hospital that I did my surgery, the, the cervical fusion. It was Thomas Jefferson? Well, first they they, they sent me to Hahnemann Hospital because that was a regional trauma center. My mother did some research and found out that they were a great trauma center, but they were not the best spinal cord. I don't know if you know that there's, it's called model systems yep. in, in the country. So the trauma center was part of the trauma center model system. And then they sent me to the rehab. I, I went to another rehab, but the, the, the hospital I did surgery was Thomas Jefferson, which is part of the model systems for spinal cord recovery. And so they actually had a pretty cool intensive early on. I got, I got to spend two weeks in rehab right after my surgery. And then I went to McGee Hospital, which was supposed to be for three months in Philly. But it was too far from my family at that point. You know, yeah. yeah. They come in for three months and it's already two, three months already. So they transferred me up to Kessler. Okay. Uh, right, right around Thanksgiving of '88, I okay. went to so. in West Orange. In West Orange. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, that's where uh, I call home as well. I was there uh, in 1992, so I missed you by about four years or so. So that's when you started working with the good folks at Kessler. It is. It is. And uh, luckily, knock on wood. Well, I broke my wrist as part of the accident, so they. Basically, they did three months of rehab, and then my cast came off, and they realized I wasn't really able to take advantage of the uh, the physical therapy with a broken arm, so they kept me for another three months. Nice. And then they were doing construction on my house, so I wasn't ready to go home. So then they sent me to Cray Hospital in Colorado. Wow, you made the rounds, my friend. So this is what I was saying. I was kind of a gypsy when it came to rehab. Wow. I was traveling all around, which in the long in the long run made a huge difference in the strength and the ability that I had coming out. I can't imagine these poor folks who uh, now have three months or less. Of- oh, much less. Yeah, I don't even think yeah. some of these people are getting like a couple of weeks and then they're shooing them out of there. I, I don't know how they do that. I don't know either because uh, unbelievable. Like, so now, after you've made all the rounds and you've done PT and OT in several different states, uh, when does the idea of Charles Fleischer, the author, come about? And and how soon after that did the Secrets of Disabilities: Four Steps to Turn Tragedies into Opportunities? When was that born? Yeah, much much later. So it, it's the Secret of Difficulties. Four steps to turn tragedy into opportunity. Um, so, one of the one of the things that we have to come out of we had when I was in Colorado, they had an amazing recreational therapy department, and as a quadriplegic, I I, I roll into the the recreational therapy department and. They've got like 12 full-time staff recreational therapists there. Right. 
you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been to camp, you see a list of activities that are upcoming in the next month. And I'm looking at this list. The list included water skiing, hot air ballooning, camping, <laughs> whitewater rafting. And I'm like, is this an extreme sports camp? Or am I <laughs> right. You're kidding me, right? Uh, so I took the advantage and I signed up. I was, I was 19 at the time at this, by this point. Uh, I signed up for everything on that list, except for maybe basket weaving. I think I left that one off. <laughs> wow. But I signed up for everything on that list. And that really was a positive shock to my system. And then so far as it made me aware of the kinds of things that I would still be able to do and participate in and accomplish in my life. And then I actually was talking to one of the other patients one day and uh, he, probably, he wasn't probably much young, much older, maybe even younger than me, but he had a little bit more experience under his belt. I think he might have been a pattern. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I guess he can see that I was struggling a little bit. This one of those, I'm far from home. I'm in you know, Colorado, you know, obviously. There's no family around. And as much as I was enjoying the, the, the kinds of activities I had, he could see that I'm having a moment. And he's like, you know, before your accident, maybe there was 50,000 things that you could do. You know, you've got a spinal cord injury. Maybe there's, now there's 10. Right. You're going to have to decide. Are you going to focus on the 40,000 things you can't do anymore or the 10,000 things you still can? That's good. That's great advice. And it just was kind of a trigger and a switch. And I like to think that I was trying to be positive in my circumstance. And I was trying to do whatever was put in front of me. And I did take opportunities and to take advantage of the things. But that helped trigger my attitude in a way. I said, well, that, that's, that's something to live by. You know, so complaining, the, yeah. complaining doesn't accomplish anything. It just wastes your time. So, mm -hmm. so the wheel started turning, huh? It did. And it, it brings me back to this now, which I heard much later, the serenity prayer, you know, just to be the, the willingness, the, the ability to deal with the things you can't and get and put them inside the ones you can't. Sure. Absolutely. So then now, the, how soon after that did you start to formulate the, um, the four steps that would turn tragedy into opportunity? When did all that start to come about? Well, I didn't write the book until I was 46 and this was 18. So there's a big span of time in between. Yeah. So the trigger, the trigger for the book was as I would look back, I don't know, I don't know about you, John, but people ask me on a regular basis, they either say, Well, how did you get through this? And I couldn't, and I hear this a lot, I couldn't have done this. And of course, nobody knows that uh, until they go through a tough situation. Right. I look back, I had been looking back at all of the opportunities that I had, despite the fact that I had this horrible injury at a very early age. And I started thinking back about all of the things that I would not have done, would not have been able to do right. if it hadn't been for my injury in the first place. Mm -hmm. Interesting way to look at it. John, how old are you? Have you ever, fought, have you ever flown first class? I have not, no. Okay, so the first time I, f I flew first class, I was 18 years old. Nice. You want to know why? Because you were in a, in a, on a stretcher, right? No. No, no, not that kind of first class. That's oh. the first time I flew. Oh, That's okay. the first time I flew in a helicopter. Okay. The first time I flew first class is I was going to rehab in Colorado. And back in those days... Instead of putting you on uh, the kind of device that they use now, which is called a, uh, it's called an aisle chair, they transfer you into this scary thing and roll you down the aisle. Oh God! The pilots, the pilots just grabbed me out of my wheelchair and put me in first class. Nice. 
because it's right up in the front of the plane. Nice. Must be in the front row, right? Good, good for you. So that was, <laughs> and you know, I, I didn't think much of it at the time, but I look back, it's like, you know, I, I can't afford to fly first class. Sure. So I've flown first class about five or six times in my life because of that situation. Yeah. Awesome. So, so that so that's one of the earliest things. All, obviously, all of those whitewater rafting, hot air ballooning, camping, going to the Rockies, I wouldn't have been, on, been able to do any of that stuff at 18, 19 years old if yeah. I hadn't broken my neck. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So tell us now, how does the book come about? You've got me on the on the edge of my seat here. Tell me, when does the book start to come together? And tell our listeners what the four steps to turn tragedy into opportunity are. So as I was looking back and answering these questions from people on a regular basis about, oh, I couldn't have done it, or people say, uh, how did you do it? How did you get through this? At that point, uh, you know, I would look back and ask myself the same question. And obviously, you know, family had a lot to do with it, especially in the beginning and throughout. And at one point, I ran into an issue where I knew I was going to have to be doing some speaking on a regular basis, and I was absolutely terrified of public speaking. It just never went well. Uh, Giving presentations of any kind, uh, getting up in front of the class, just even though I would feel confident and comfortable, as soon as I got up there, I would freeze, freeze out. (laughs) So I joined an organization called Toastmasters. And Toastmasters is clubs that meet all over the world. There's something like 250,000, no, it's 250,000, people. But there's thousands upon thousands of clubs. I think it's like 15,000 everywhere. And I I joined this club by accident. I met somebody taking a college class, uh, one of these non-credit ones when I was in my 30s. He said, have you ever heard of Toastmasters? No. Go to a Toastmasters meeting. Completely changed uh, their format. They get you up and speaking, Mm -hmm. starting with a joke of the day or a word of the day or doing some kind of volunteer thing. And the next thing you know, uh, I am comfortable and confident speaking. I become president of the organization and I uh, start speaking to high school students and elementary school students to the point where I've now got something like 50,000 students I've spoken to, close to a 1,000 different schools. And I started thinking about, well, maybe speaking would be a a good career move for me because I'm already doing it. I'm already making some money. Yeah. Geez, all of a sudden you're Ryan Seacrest, right? You're talking to everybody. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm not not a fan (laughs) of More, more like uh, Michael Strahan is a New York Giants. Fan, okay, right? okay. If we're, if we're going in the Kelly Ripa world, yeah, you're 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 comfortable though. This is good. You're talking to a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Talk, and, talking to a bunch of people, and I joined an organization called the National Speakers Association. They got a local chapter, and I'm learning about. Do you have a book in you? The guy comes out and does a presentation. Says, "Do you have a book in you?" And of course, before he said it, I never even crossed my mind. This is probably 2010, 2011-ish. Right. Never crossed my mind. And then like, well, maybe I do. And I started thinking about that. Um, well, I, I, I went to a conference. So what actually triggered it probably, the conference was in New York for the National Speakers Association. And you know how they kind of have those throwaway questions at the end sometimes where, People ask, well, if you had one thing you want us to learn, what would it be? You know, an audience question. Yeah, sure. So the woman, she stops for a second. She thinks uh, for a couple seconds, she said, go to where the pain is. Interesting. She she goes where the pain is and she goes and fix it. Wow. That's pretty prophetic. Right. So I'm like, what the hell is she talking about? Go to where the pain is and fix it. And then I know I start thinking about it. Well, wait a minute. All these little difficulties and struggles that people solve on a regular basis, it's people solving their own problems and problems you see around them. I've done a fair share of that. 
I've got some experience with that. That would be a good topic, especially coming from somebody who's had a spinal cord injury, you know, because people are like, so, well, where your expertise come from? You know, nobody has any doubts when they see me uh, in a wheelchair giving presentations that I've had, uh, I have had some experience with, with difficulties. Right. Well, I, I hope you've given some royalties from your book to this woman that, that kind of gave you the kickstart because it sounds well, I don't like even know her name. I don't even remember her that's name. fine. I'm just kidding. But this was the impetus. She was the impetus. So, yeah. So tell us, what are the four steps to turn tragedy into opportunity? The first is to identify a difficulty. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting anybody go out of their way to have struggles and difficulties. Everybody's got enough. Yeah. The point is, take a look and examine the things that you struggle with at home, at work, business. What are some things that you can identify as difficulties? It's my, it's my firm belief that every product, every organization, just about every successful business comes from that premise of solving a problem that someone else is dealing with. Okay. Okay, that's why that's why businesses begin. That's why organizations begin. That's how Kessler was founded. Mm -hmm. That's how my book got started. So it's identify a difficulty. Number one. Second is to contemplate and come up with a solution. And also, how would you fix it? Next part, the third part, is to make a plan to put that solution into a plan format. And the fourth is taking action. You have to constantly take action towards achieving, uh, your, uh, making your plan come about to solve the problem. Excellent. Now, can you share with us some of your favorite stories from the book, like some examples of people who created amazing opportunities for themselves that they probably not uh, probably would not have had had they not had uh, difficulties in their life? Certainly. In the mid-1980s, a young mid-20s woman living in California, very active, tennis, skiing, hand gliding, steps off a mountain and immediately realizes that she has not connected herself to her hand glider. Oh boy. She almost 60 feet and instantly has a spinal cord injury. Now, that woman's name is Marilyn Hamilton. And at the time, she was happily married, school teacher, and she just wasn't willing to give up the kinds of active lifestyle that she had. But at the time, uh, early 80s, Wheelchairs for anyone were 50 to 60 pounds, not very mobile. Half the time, you needed somebody else to push you around. And Marilyn was in her, uh, you know, 120, she weighed, the wheelchair was almost half as much as she weighed, okay? Right. He was not willing to accept that this was going to be the kind of mobility she was going to have moving forward. So she went to some friends who were custom making hand gliders at the time. And she said, guys, can we do this? I know that the, the materials that you're using are much better light, uh, lightweight materials. Can we do something better? And together, they started manufacturing the first lightweight wheelchairs in the United States. A company, uh, company you're probably familiar with called Quickie. Yeah, yeah. They found, she found them with a partner, Sunrise Medical. Unbelievable. You know, I actually know Marilyn because I had seen her speak at Kessler and um, okay. she also works with a company now called Galileo. And uh, I actually purchased one of uh, one of the items that they that they produce. She is amazing. I didn't realize she was in your book. She's amazing. So here's an example of she never would have gotten involved in the, the sports and then overall mobility world if she hadn't had the injury in the first place. Now, obviously, she didn't want it, but she found a way to impact her own life and millions of other people's lives by finding a solution to a problem first for herself and then sharing that with other people. Well, it's like the old cliche, necessity is the mother of all invention, right, Charles? Exactly. Absolutely. 
Wow. I didn't realize that. I didn't know it was a, a hang gliding accident. I knew that she was injured in some form or fashion, but yeah, she saw a need and she filled the void. And uh, as you said, it not only helped her, but thousands. I mean, even more than that. I mean, millions of people, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, have, yeah I would say by now probably millions Yeah, people. she revolutionized the, the wheelchair industry. That's unbelievable. Charles, where can people find your book? Where can they purchase it? Uh, how can they uh, can get their hands on a copy? Well, the best way for me is to, if you email me, I can sell you a copy. And that's my email is uh, Charles at O-P-P-G-U-Y. So that's op guy. That's short for opportunities guy. Right. O-P-P-G-U-Y.com. So just email me and I'll, uh, uh, I will send you a link to, to buy the book. That's the easiest. I, it is available on Amazon, but the royalties from Amazon, they take uh, a bunch. So you can definitely, you can look up the Charles Fleischer the secret of difficulties on Amazon. But the best way uh, for me, if anyone wants to buy one for me, and if they want a signature on it, I could definitely personalize it. If somebody emails me, I could uh, yeah, work something out through uh, through PayPal or multiple different kinds of uh, mm-hmm. pay. How about of the small businesses that you chronicle in the book, who made the most money from their invention and opportunity? I have to say, without being able to add up the numbers from everybody's success. I'm sure Marilyn is probably up there. Right. But Ralph Braun would probably be the most rags to riches type of story. So when Ralph was six years old, he was playing in the yard with his, his cousins and his cousin walked up behind him uh, and said, Ralph, Oh, let's back up a little bit. Ralph was looking for his glasses. He had dropped his glasses. And he was very upset. And his cousin came up behind him. He was like, Ralph, I wouldn't worry about it too much. I just heard your father telling my father that you'll be dead by the time you're 12 years old. <laughs> That's quite a, something to, to hear. Good grief. But also the kind of things you you hear from you know kids. You know, yeah, sure. Kids are cool. Right. As it turns out, Ralph's father did just tell uh, his cousin's dad that they had taken him to the hospital and he had been diagnosed with a terminal muscular disease. Um, and at the time, the muscular, it was muscular sclerosis and the type he had at the time, they thought was... Um, Incurable? Terminal. Okay. But Ralph... Uh, they, no, they thought it was terminal at okay. the time. Okay. They, they actually, they, I did actually overhear this conversation. Uh, but Ralph at that moment said, no, that's not going to be me. So by the time Ralph was 12 years old, he had converted a riding lawnmower into one of the world's first scooters. This is the 1950s. And then Ralph got a job on an assembly line. He was living in, in Indiana got a, a job as a quality control person at a local factory. And then the factory moved out of town. So his scooter was no longer able to get him here. It was a riding lawnmower scooter. Right. It was no longer able to get him back and forth to work. So he put a lift on the back of a mail truck and would lift himself up. Uh, just a standard lift you'd see like for deliveries and stuff back in those days. Yeah. Now the 60s. Put it on the back of a mail truck, which had a flat from the front to the back. So he took the chair out and he was able to drive right from his, uh, his man-made scooter. And he took that back and forth to work until the truck died. And then he started thinking of ways to make a next generation for himself. And he did, he took a, a, a Dodge van or a Chevy van. I'm not sure. And this is the early seventies vans were fairly new and he put uh, a lift into a van and people started asking them to produce them for him. Uh-huh. I see this. He saw the need and he filled the void. And now he was, uh, is, is, he's the guy that started the, the craze with putting the lifts in the side of vans? 
Yes, if you're familiar with Blonde, Blonde Mobility. Oh, wow, that's, that's him. That, that's the Ralph Lauren. Wow. Yeah, if now they're now they're uh, do everything from lifts to fully uh, like assembly line minivans, full size vans, all the equipment that goes into it, and they've got you know thousands of dealers throughout the world. God, that's unbelievable. Good for and him, then, and they, good for everybody before, that's benefited from that. Unbelievable. Yeah, these are great before, stories. Right before Ralph died, the company was making about two hundred million dollars a year. Wow. Unbelievable. Jeez. You, you wish that people didn't have to use them because they weren't having injuries or weren't having uh, issues with mobility, but uh, he saw the need and and he took advantage of it. Unbelievable. First for himself, just to get in and out of a car, but now uh, that everybody else that could benefit from that, that is amazing. I, I urge everyone to, to get the book, check out the book. Um, Charles, I really appreciate you for coming on. How about now peer mentoring? Something that that is how I got to know you. Uh, I was given a list of names from uh, from Jane Mitchell at uh, at Kessler. Uh, to we're going to start up with the peer mentoring program again. How did you get involved with that? How important is it to you, and ultimately to the people that you try to mentor? Well, I have been doing it on and off. Uh, I know the program would kind of slow down for a while, so I got through because I believe. The folks that came in to see me, uh, I know early on when I was still uh, first injured, the people would come into the hospital and, and talk to me, and I got some exposure to things that I wouldn't have gotten exposure to early on. So, it, you know, and then being, I told you about the experience with the guy pretty much changed, helped to move my attitude in the direction of focusing on what you can do towards what you can't, just seeing guys and girls, uh, men and ladies, men and ladies who had gone through it. So I knew it was important. And, uh, I kind of joke at this point, my injury has been 31, 32 years. I lose track, uh, that I call myself a, a fresh a professional quadriplegic. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's important that, uh, people could benefit and learn from that, uh, that experience I have. I post stuff on, on YouTube, like little quad tips and hacks and tricks, things that I've picked up along the way. And I have a kind of a YouTube, um, it kind of explains my situation, goes in a little bit more detail. Right. What we talked about. And so it was very important to just like people, even if I don't have a spinal cord injury that she could overcome right. these individual challenges. And uh, kind of give people that. It's cathartic for you too, right? You're able to get some stuff off your chest. And if things like that can help people out, all the better, right? Sure. So I've, I've, been, I've been blessed with a, uh, a temperament that I don't, I also don't get uh, upset mm -hmm. easily. It's very hard to get me, uh, I, just, I just fell off a lift and broke my hip. Oh, jeez. Uh, in, in June, uh, um, and you still had a smile on your face. Tell me you were. Tell me you were a little ticked off. I, I, I. As soon as they got me back in the wheelchair, I made them take pictures of my face <laughs> even before I cleaned it because I knew it would make a good story. Oh my gosh, that's and unbelievable! I, I, I show you the pictures of. Uh, I look like Rocky after Apollo Creed on the Rocky one. <laughs> Prediction fell, pain, right? I fell four and a half feet Ugh. into a stone gravel driveway. Oh, no. Yeah, it was pretty. Oh, that's not pretty at all. Well, last one, last one for me, Charles, and it's one that I ask all of my guests, and it's, it is this. And it's great because I get so many different answers to it. If I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what is the first thing that you would do? Yes, sex. I believe sex. <laughs> That's what I had not heard. Why not? Oh my <laughs> gosh, that is great. I have not heard that one. Oh, dude, I, I technically I, I died a virgin. I, I was, I was a virgin before I had my accident. So oh. I never had sex. So that would, that would, 
number one. There you have it. The X-rated version of the quadcast. We're going to go to uh, right to sex. Oh, that's unbelievable. I've heard mine is that I would always like to get get my uh, headset on and go out for a run. And one that I heard recently uh, was that somebody would book a hotel room for a weekend and sleep on their own and not have somebody get them out of bed. And then in the morning, take a nice long shower and all. But uh, you take the cake, Charles Fleischer. I say you win first prize. Yeah. See, uh, I would say that the things that you just described, even though I can't do any of that, I can still, I take lots of long walks in my wheelchair and I travel a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna knock off the last eight states in my 52 of 50 states. Uh, I said 52, 50 states. I've got, uh, I've got 42. I'm gonna knock off the last eight this this summer. So there you go. Your bucket list. You're knocking all 50 off. Yes, so oh, my bucket. List great. Is, uh, well, Charles Fleischer, I want to thank you uh, for joining me today on the program, for writing the book that I am going to delve a little more into, and also for agreeing to continue on as a peer mentor for the uh, Kessler Peer Mentoring Program. Uh, I look forward to meeting you once this global pandemic is over and we open the building up again. Uh, but again, I want to thank you for coming on and for all that you've done on behalf of the community. Sure, John. My pleasure. I look forward to meeting you, too. And just like that, another episode of the Quadcast is in the books. Please be sure to check out Charles's book, The Secret of Difficulties, Four Steps to Turn Tragedies into Opportunities. Thank you again to Chris Parapesco at Lime Studios NYC for mixing the show. Until next time, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care about no wheelchair. I got so much left to